Greetings to everyone in the precious name of Jesus. This is Reverend Dr. Gene Archer, um, pastor of Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn for those who are on podcast. We continue our study in the book of First John. And um, tonight we plan to cover quite a lot of ground. And so let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are you are here to inform our hearts on the truth of who you are and who we are in this world. Oh God, it's not just information about this, but transforming information that will, at the end of this study tonight, concretize our faith even more so in you and trust in you and empower us to grasp and articulate what is happening in this world in a spiritual note and our place in this world. Also will inform us so that we will not be surprised by some of the eventualities that will happen to us and to the church. And so God, I pray that your people will have attentive hearts to the truth of what will be shared tonight. <clears throat> and, um, and in so doing, help us to protect and guard through the help of the Holy Spirit, the truth of your word and also to use that same truth to reach out to those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Last week we looked at um, the context of how we need to understand our Christian place. Paul, John has been contrasting the Christian life and the, the, the false teachers of his time. Um, it, 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 exposes, it exposes the false teachers, but it also solidifies the true believers' understanding of their salvation so that they are fully assured. Now, I, I want to set the groundwork before I move any further, is that um, he uses certain words like because, because, because emphasizes the, the place of the believer, our sins are forgiven. And um, we're looking at chapter two now, and we're looking in particular at verses three to 17 and the last part of that section, and we want to get into verses 18 and, and a few more verses there in our study tonight, very important. So he is talking about the moral test, um, verses one to 10 in chapter one, then the moral test 
part two, verses two, chapter two, verses three to six. Um, and that is where we are right now, the moral test and the second segment of it. And then um, we dealt with that last week. And then the social test, um, chapter two, verses seven to 11. The commandment to love one another is both old and new, and a new commandment I give unto you, and so on. Um, verses seven to eight, he deals with that. And I touched on that last week. Um, the hating of one's brother betrays a claim that we are saved and reveals that such a person is still in darkness. And here, the, the falsity of the claim to be in the light, one is either in the light or in the darkness. There's no twilight, as one commentator said. There's no twilight in the Christian life. Twilight Christians. And so there is no twilight. It's revealed not by disobedience, but by hatred. So disobedience is serious. But John uses a strong term here, which manifests darkness, which shows that darkness is equivalent to hatred. And the assertion is not simply characterized by uh, as false as revealed a false nature. It involves the existence of a moral state that is, ex is opposite to the claim that one is making, according to um, Westcott in his commentary. The one who truly knows God and truly is in the light will obey God's command to love his or her brother. Says John Stott says on this, the light shines. This is what John Stott says on verses 10 and 11 page 95 in his commentary on first john the light shines on our path so that we can see clearly and so walk properly or live properly if we love people we will we see how to avoid sinning against them i like that oh. if we love people we see how to avoid sinning against them. I wonder if we're paying attention to this. Now, just think about all the fightings and quarrelings that we have in church. There's a manifestation and a questioning of our love for each other. If we love people, Start says, we see how to avoid sinning against them. The person with hatred in his heart, however, because he is in darkness, also walks in darkness. Walking 
peripateo, it means to live a certain way. So the way that you live is a manifestation of the state that you're in. If you are in darkness, you'll walk in darkness. You can't be in darkness and walk in light. Hatred, darkness is a distortion of things. And so hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. It is love which sees straight, thinks clearly, and makes us balanced in our outlook, judgment, and conduct. This is what Stott is saying. Sometimes I trust that we can, you're hearing me because sometimes you can be so familiar with my voice and what I say that you just hear it, but you're not hearing if you know what I mean. I trust that is not the case. Question in verse 10. Is it the man, the per, the man himself who didn't, does not stumble or is it that he doesn't cause Excuse me, he doesn't cause others to stumble. That's it, the thing in verse 10. Also, I'm wondering if John is suggesting that his opponents literally hated all the brothers, all believers. It is more likely that the brothers they hated were the author himself and those who belong to his group is what professor Cruz said in his commentary page 85 krusc and so here we read that if you are in darkness you will walk in the darkness and one of the manifestations of that darkness is hatred. Later on, John says, if we hate our brothers, we know that nobody who hates his brother has the love of God in him. And if you hate your brother, you don't have eternal life in you. And so darkness over against light is mentioned here. And so darkness, Walking in darkness and hatred are all synonymous terms used in this context. Light means love and not sinning against our brothers and sisters. And so John deals with that and it's very disturbing. One is a wow, I hope that is me. Is that me or is that not me? So you make you examine yourself quite seriously. But then John in verses 12 to 14 in chapter two of first John, he talks about the assurance of John's readers and us 
all of us here now. Having abruptly stated he switches quite quickly. Um, he doesn't want them to think that they are in darkness or they are doubting their conversion experience. So he's very careful through the spirit to, um, to, to, to emphasize that he is actually cutting quite clearly, talking about the false teachers and, um, and the lack of loyalty. And then he switches right now to those who are the true believers and their obedience to Christ. And so here he changes gears as it were and reassures them of their status in the body of Christ, the true believer that is. So there's no twilight. There's no such thing as a twilight Christian. Black and white or night and dark. No. And so let us observe what he says about the assurance of the believer. And you think we might be familiar with this, but let us look at it. Because is mentioned. Since these things are true of you, it's important for John to write the epistle to deepen their assurance of faith and with additional instructions about how they should live their lives in Christ. And so John is actually saying that you live your life not to get saved, but because you're saved, you live a life of love and righteousness a certain way. Because not your works that will make the difference, but your works is a manifestation that there is a difference. So your works will not make the difference in the sense of making you saved, but your works shows that there is a difference between you and the false teachers are falsehood. And so these verses here, John makes six statements about the readers. He says, I am writing three times he mentions this. And he mentions it in the aorist tense, which is a past accomplished fact. And then he says, I wrote, no, he says, I am writing, that's in the present tense, I should say. Um, and then he says, in the past tense, I wrote. And sometimes you wonder, why is it, but he's, he, he's writing and he wrote, why the switch? The present tense refers to this epistle that he's writing now, and the aorist tense refers to a previous letter, perhaps the Gospel of John, that they were aware of. The present tense also refers to the whole of 1 John. And the aorist tense refers to the first part of the letter, the part preceding chapter 2, verses 12, um, you know, 
it, it chapters one, verse one to chapter two, verse 11. That is what he could be talking about. And then in chapter two, verse 12, you know, he makes a statement. But some say that John was interpreted, interrupted, I should say, at the end of chapter of verse 13. He was interrupted at the end of chapter of verse 13. And that is when he re resumed his, um, his, his teaching to them, changing from the past tense to the heiress. Maybe he wrote a section of the letter. Maybe the letter was sent in segments to first part and then the second part. And we have the whole right here now. So the first part um, could be when he said, I wrote to you, but the second part is what he said, I'm writing now. Anyway, cut it. That is some literary form. And I'm not going to spend much time on that. What I want to spend on is um, when he uses these terms now, um, little children, fathers, young men. And of course, there are different views with that. Some believe that the distinction is one of physical age. Uh, some believe that. Others believe that these labels refer to the stages in their spiritual development. Little children are like new believers. Fathers are more mature believers. Young men could refer to between the other two, as I just mentioned. Um, the designation little children, I would think also embraces all his readers, because they were like his children in that sense. This is borne out in, in chapter three, verse seven and verse 18 um, and so on. Who are then divided into two groups? So he's talking generally, this is what I think, you know, lends more support um, in that regard. There's so many interpretations, and this, this is one possible one, um, that little children is all of them. And then there's a division of within that little children is, is children generally, both young and old. Um, there are two groups within that, the fathers, the mature in the fit, and the young men, the immature, perhaps just chronologically young in the faith, or perhaps fathers and young, men older and younger members respectively. Some have even suggested that John has um, church offices in mind. Hence the fathers are equivalent to the elders and so on and young men to deacons. That last part here is, is definitely out. I would not hold to that at all. And so the distinction, the distinction between little children, technia, T-E-K-N-I-A, technia, and children um, emphasizes the former stresses the community of nature and kingship between 
parent and child, whereas the latter stresses the need for moral training and guidance. Mm -hmm. um, that might be true, yes, but that's not necessarily likely according to the context. And again, look at it another way, the perfect tense is using all six of these statements. Both um, Ollie is staying there to all of them. And the perfect tense, as you know, the perfect tense emphasizes past action with continuing results into the present time. So I believe that when he's talking about all those categories, he's talking about them generally and them specifically within that general statement. And I would just leave it at that. Um, a lot of people can build on that and make a big thing out of that. There are just different stages of maturation within and different groups within the general congregation of true believers. That is, I'll just leave it at that. That's what I believe it is saying. But then he mentioned something about victory. He says, victory over Satan is done. And that is key. They are victorious. Especially the young ones too, who have a more proclivity towards that. But he lumps and he says, our oh, victory has been completed already. We've seen it in the later chapters of First John. It says, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we um, have overcome. Uh, not that we shall overcome, we have overcome. We are victors already. Victor of a Satan, although there's still these daily personal struggles that we have, but in a true sense, the war has already been won. If you notice, he says here, you, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, who achieved the victory on your behalf and now empowers you to stand firm, you have conquered the evil one. You see it in chapter 4, verse 4 again of this book. You have overcome the evil one. But pastor, and, and this, is, this is what is so serious in the churches today. One of us as Christians, and sad to say, a lot of many people within the Christian community, and I, and I would question your salvation or, you know, is that they are going to the Obiaman and all of these other sources and they have their mind set on these other systems apart from Christianity. Some of them are dabbling into clairvoyance. Some of them are into necromancy and all of these other systems that God forbids. And they fail, Christians fail to understand when the Bible says that you have 
conquered the evil one. We could have stopped there. And so when you talk about spiritual warfare, we um that those are different battles we have to fight, but the war has been won already. And so we need to have confidence in the victory that we have over Satan. And if Satan is the greatest of all evil forces in existence, then all the demonic forces that you could see and um and and and, and coming out of um the pagan practice and all the detestable practices in Jamaica and all over, out of Haiti, the Bahamas, and you name all those places, even in Toronto right here, Christians must live in confidence to know that you, no matter how feeble you feel, once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have conquered the evil one. This is because we are participating in the life of, of Jesus Christ. We are never God and we are not God. But we, what's his is ours. We are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And um, so we share in this authority. And if you look at all of the, the things and positions that Jesus Christ has in through scripture. In particular, you see Ephesians chapter one, verses 18 to 23. In verse 22, it says, it says there, all of this is for the church. Some translations have to the church. And in chapter three, verses 10, 11, 12, going on there, it talks about through the church. So you have for the church, or through the church and through the church. This is powerful, all the principles and powers. We are powerful. Many of us are afraid of Satan and demons, but they are afraid of us. Because we are in Christ. And so our view of God will dictate the degree of our fear of the unknown world and the unseen world. Some Christians are afraid of the dark. They are afraid of evil and so they try to do some other evil to counteract that because they have lost sight and have no proper understanding of the greatness and the, the power of Jesus Christ. Look at the Gospels. You see that all the encounters that Jesus had with demons, they recognize his power. Have they come, come to torment us before time? They recognize him. James tells us that even the devils, um, you know, believe that Jesus exists and they shudder because they know how great the Son of God is and a day is coming in which he was going to judge this world in righteousness. So you emphatically stated here have conquered, it's a past tense, the evil one. So if, if that is done already, you cannot say that the evil one might conquer me. 
because it is, you're not thrown on your own. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do we recognize that? And then verse 12 talks about forgiveness of sins is for his name's sake. And how significant is this? What does this tell us about the ultimate motivation in God's heart for his redemptive work in Christ? Psalm 23 verse 3 says, he restores my soul. He leadeth me, leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, according to his nature. And because, in fact, the word Yahweh, part of the root of the word Yahweh is Hava. And the meaning of Hava means to get. Not that God needs us, because God has, God has no needs. We're told in, in, um, in Acts chapter 17, he has no needs. He doesn't need us or needed creation to be God. He has no needs. But he wants us because his very nature is that of love. To share in the fullness and the wholeness of love, life, and light. And so, this assurance of salvation, this is what Marshall in his commentary says. It is good for Christians to be reminded in this way of their spiritual standing. Too often we have to hedge such declarations with conditions. We can be we can be sure we know him if we obey his commandments. Of course, this is necessary to avoid complacency and moral laxity. But it is possible to make Christian salvation into a precarious possession that needs to be repossessed every moment. Such a faith lacks self-confidence and assurance. It is good to remember that in the last analysis, our salvation depend on the depends on the promise and power of God so that we can boldly clear that we have peace with God and that we know whom we have believed. John's statements here are meant to awaken such confidence among his readers. Chapter 5, verse 13 bears this out. Nor should we be reluctant in um, expressing the joy that comes from this knowledge. And so John is creating a balance here. He gives assurance, but then he, he says, no, bear in mind, no, brethren, that 
you should not love the world. Do not love the world. A warning not to love the world. Verses 15 to 17. John Stott places an important note on this in page 20, page 98 of his commentary. John now turns from the description of the church to a description of the world an instruction about the church's attitude to the world. In so doing, he changes from affirmations about the Christian, the Christian standing to warning about their behavior. The characteristic tense of this passage is not the perfect indicative but the present imperative, love not the world. Christian people have entered into a great inheritance in the forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, and the conquest of the wicked one. But their temptation have not come to an end. Although standing is good, our behavior must come out of that standing. And so John gives a couple of reasons why we should not love the world. Do not love the world because such love is incompatible with loving the Father. Verses 15 to 16. Does this conflict with John 3:16? Their God loves the world, but here we are told that such love is evil. However, the world is different in the two texts, as we all know, it's quite obvious. In John 3, 16, the world is humanity as fallen and in need of redemptive grace. In 1 John 2, verse 15, the world here is a satanically inspired system of hostility and rebellion and opposition to God. Also, the nature of the love in each of these cases is different. In John 3.16, love equals redemptive, saving love. In second, in 1 John 2. 15, love is the selfish love of indulgence. Okay, it's important for us to note that distinction. In John 3, 16, it is God's desire to save the sinner. Whereas in 1 John 2, 15, it is, indiv is individual desire to share in sinner's sin. Big difference. Love for the world and love for the Father are mutually different. James 4 verse 4 tells us quite clearly, you adulterous people, a spiritual adultery. 
Do you not know your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's why we have to be very careful when I talk about what you use to win people is what you have to use to keep people. I know that I'm not knocking the method of bringing people to Christ. But what is happening today is that we have to use different media to bring people to Christ. And the medium that you would use, like YouTube or whatever, you, nothing is wrong with that. that. That's an instrument. But what I'm talking about is, is the content, the spiritual content. If you're going to use manipulation, um, any other form of even the songs too, if the songs are not theologically, biblically sound, um, if it's music you're bringing to them and it's the, it's the, it's the, um, it's the, the, the lyrics are not biblical, then um, you're going to have to keep on that tone. This pastor, as you know, um, was had a church of over a thousand people in Africa. And he was preaching what they wanted to hear, another gospel. But when he started to preach the gospel, his congregation dropped to 100. So we are living in a very pragmatic society. And people might say, well, pastor, it works, you know. And, and not because it works, it means that it is of God. Not because you get results. It means that those results are of God. This is very important for us. And I might, some people might be signing off on me now. I don't care. You know, um, when, when Moses went to, when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, the magicians there also worked some form of spectacular things. In fact, we're told in Revelation 13 that Satan is able to make fire fall from heaven in full view of men and women. So that's spectacular. That's like a Mount Carmel again. Well, God, look, it's spectacular. So therefore, God must be in it. No, not, not necessarily. God says it in, in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 19 that you know, he was not in the fire, he was not in the earth, he was not in the wind. Of course, God is everywhere, but get what I'm saying. Don't use those things to measure the salvific efficacy of God. I'm not saying this because of where I was converted. It was a gospel that, convert, that converted me, not some decision that somebody makes. Not some call to the altar. There's a place for that and all those things are important. But if unless God through the spirit does the redemptive work in the heart, that is just pragmatism. Oh, we had such baptism and 
A lot of people are baptized and they're not even converted, but it's not our job to know that. We're supposed to preach a gospel and God will do the changing and the calling, the inner call. I got converted on a Friday night at a road corner after hearing the gospel. And I mean, it was a very dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit blows where it, he wants to. There's no law that said that somebody has to be saved in a church setting at an altar. Conversion can happen anywhere. That is one of the places it can happen. And I just want to make us understand that unless God brings a change in the heart, then there's no real change. There's some churches that just get people and they just baptize them right away and the numbers look very good. But a lot of them not saved. And even those who go through the regular stuff too, the wheat and the tears shall grow until the day of harvest. Having said that, let me slip into another area of the study here. But before I go there, let me just wrap up this. All that is in the word, world, it talks about um, love for the world and love for the Father are not this, are contradictory. F.F. Bruce, great F.F. Bruce there, I mean teacher. The desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pretentiousness of life. Those are the three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you know those Trinitarian patterns, okay? They're not Trinitarian in the sense of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but there's a pattern that, that Satan emulates throughout Scripture. You see it in the book of Revelation, very pronounced. And it's all a part of deception. John later on talks about that in the latter chapter. We'll get to that, the Lord willing. And so, and, um, and, and he's saying here, the outlook is commonly des designated a form of materialism. Materialism is not just to like material things. Materialism is the exclusion of the creator. It means anything that you are trusting as the creation over against the creator is materialism. Worldliness does not reside in things. Because we're told in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. A thing by itself is not pure, impure. So worldliness does not reside in things, but it does, but it does certainly reside in our concentration on things. When we worship things instead of God, um, when we do not put our trust in the source of our existence, now that is a that is materialism. Even the first commandment, though shall I must have not God before me. I must be the first without a second. That is true monotheism. 
unlike, unlike, unlike the Mormon church that has many other gods apart from acknowledging the supreme heresy. And they teach that, that Jesus Christ was a, was a brother of Lucifer. You see, it's all of this garbage. And there's a, there's, a, there's a movie that came out, part one and part two, I think, about the chosen. Very aesthetically beautiful and so on in the sense of the presentation. But the content is a different Christ that you're talking about. In fact, the producer of it is a Mormon. And a lot of Christians, I spoke to a Christian from months ago. Thank God he's not from my church, church I pastor. And he was saying, oh my goodness, I love that program so much. I watched it and it was such a blessing. No, it's not. It's their way of subtly getting you to come over into Mormonism. And let me say it out there, if you know anybody and talking about that, I know that in the privacy of people's lives, they go on YouTube and they go on, they watch all kinds of stuff and they're taking all kinds of garbage and then coming to church and everything is fine. And, 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 and we have to be careful, brethren. And I'm very firm with this. I'm going to go into some stuff in a minute here. Bear with me. We are, that's why one of the parts of the maturation of the church is that we be no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's this tension and many of us, we, we all, don't worry about it, man. Once we're saved, it's okay. Don't worry about doctrine. Of course we have to worry, talk about doctrine. After a person gets saved, when they come in, then what? In fact, the word disciple, the word Christian is mentioned only three times in the Bible. Twice in Acts and once in Peter. But all of the references is about discipleship. Disciple. And it's not having a disciple class. Discipleship is a lifestyle and it's, it's a lifelong lifestyle. It's another way of us maturing into Christ because a disciple, mathetes is the Greek word used here, emphasizes one who is exact in their belief system and in the, the mindset of the, the person who is discipling them. Going to all the world and Disciple, in the Greek, the word make is not hidden in the Greek. We can't really make disciples. But just disciple, it's God who does the making. My God, a powerful tense there using the Greek. My goodness. Uh, and, and so what I'm saying is that, that mature, we have in a very pragmatic society. And oh, these are some practical things. Of course, you have to do some practical things. But we have to be careful that the practical things is not a mechanism that give, brings you results without the, 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 the truth of God's word bringing the transformation. And I'm not against um, methods and all of that and systems and all of that. No, what I'm, what, what I'm careful is that that does not, that must be the servant and not the master of our mission and outreach and teaching and evangelism and whatever we have to do. We need methods. We need effective methods. God uses methods too in different culture. But be careful that the method does not 
eclipse the message. And it must enhance or act as a conduit with the message. Just like, or like a vehicle for the message. Okay. And there's more I could say about that. I have a lot I want to say about that, but I just thought I would stop that there. And so um, if our affections, instead of being set on what is of permanent importance, are set on passing things that the heart desires and the eyes delight in, or things that encourage us to have a good con Sept of ourselves, we are fearfully impoverished. If my reputation, my public image matters more to me than the glory of God or the well-being of my brethren and, and, and so on, the, the pretentiousness of life that is has become the object of my idol worship. Again, the one effective antidote to worldliness is to have one's heart so filled with the Father's love that it has no room for any love that is incompatible with that. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust produced by or are proceeds from the sinful nature. A subjective genitive is used here. The evil inclinations of the sin principle that dwells within each of us. It is in the world, insofar as the world is its sphere of operation, the fallenness, this lust, this strong desire for includes but is more than sexual desire. We always attach it just to that. It is any and every desire that competes with the soul's satisfaction with God. If anything in this world is seeking to satisfy you more than God, then that is the lust of the flesh. God must be the first without a second. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there's none on earth I desire apart from you. Sin is what you do, this is what John Piper said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. That's, that's another definition of sin. Sin is what you do, either in your heart thinking and so on, when your heart is not satisfied with God. Where are you looking? Are you looking away from God? But I say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your heart on Jesus. This is where lordship comes in. Anything that is your bear, bear means master. Anything that is 
controlling you more than God is controlling you. And God's control forces is, 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 in, is not intrusive, but it disrupts our false reality of life and our inaccuracy and errors of life. It, it throws and messes that up. Our correct statue say it can't mess it up, but it puts it right. When you talk about the believers, Christians, they turn the Bible, say they turn the world upside down. Um, the Greek word dear actually means, in, in a sense, it, they trouble the troubler. They trouble the troubler. Are we troubling the troubler? Or are we pleasing the troubler? And I find that the Christian must always question is this bringing glory to God or is this bringing the, the amplification of evil? The magnification of evil? No. The word translated lost is epithumia. And it's found 38 times in the New Testament, only three of which have a positive connotation. And I've always talked about this. Luke 22 Verse 15, Philippians 1, verse 3, you know that one quite well. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. The word desire there is epithumia. And of first, first Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since you were, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, that's a word again, to have a, um, to have a great desire to see you face to face. The great desire there is epithumia again. The loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes refers to, tem refers to temptations that assault us from without. Loss of the flesh is from within. Loss of the eyes from without those sinful cravings which are activated by what people see and lead to covetousness is what Cruz said. Page 95. Greed may be in view here. And not in our society today, the greed is glorified. Then there's a pride of life is the arrogance and vain glory related to external circumstances of life. The tendency to impress others with our wealth, our knowledge, our position, our influence, our beauty, our physical prowess. I'm gonna talk about this some more another time, about beauty. I have a, I have a sermon on, uh, prepared on that, right? And we're told in, um, in, 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 in Psalm 90 and verse 17 about the beauty of the Lord be upon us and so on. Psalm 90 and verse 17. Anyway, and, and, and so it says here, the tendency to impress others. And John notes, um, someone said here, has in mind an attitude of pretentious arrogance 
or subtle elitism that comes from one's view of wealth, rank, status in society. Oh, I've accomplished something, I've done something that others need, can, have not done, so therefore I have it all together, so to speak. It is an over, overconfidence that makes us lose any notion that we are dependent on God. The Bible tells us in Romans, um, chapter 12, that we should not think more highly than we ought to think. So we ought to think of ourselves a certain way, but not, not self-aggrandizement. He said, do not love the world because it and its lusts are transient. Verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2. The lust, subjective genitive, the lust which the world stimulates. The one who does the will of God. Again, not the present tense, literally, the one who is doing the will of God. This is our blessing experience come from this. And so, my brethren, it's important and incumbent on us that we keep this in mind. Now, finishing this chapter, um, this, this um, section here, I'm going to begin chapter 2 and verses 18 to 27. And here I want to cover something before I leave. John emphatically states that we may know this, the true, the, the, the last hour. This is the last hour because of the existence and activity of many antichrists. Now, many of us know that the antichrist is the man of sin, the antichrist. Um, but I must bring clarity here what John is saying. The existence of many false teachers is evidence that this is the last hour. So the last hour, not just 24 hours here in this context, but is the period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And so we have a warning not to love the world. Then now we have the doctrinal test. And this is, I'm going to spend some time here. The doctrinal test, verses 18 to 27. Many of us don't like doctrine. And I, I tend to offend people a lot because I'm a bit too particular in splitting here as it were concerning doctrine. I'm trying to work to as close to the text as possible with the help of the spirit. Now, I always say that I, um, I, I try to be an exegete. Now, exegesis is um, first in the sense of you want to know what the immediate, the remote context and your different kinds of context using the tools of the language that was used then understand what the text was saying to the spirit and the author to the audience at that time you have to understand that and then hermeneutics is how it applies to us now so there's one interpretate one arm meaning to the text there's never two meanings you have to know what it meant to the people when they wrote it when it was written to them that stands but then we can make different applications based upon our societal differences and so on. But the principle of the truth permeates all those applications. 
Very important to note that. And so the doctrinal test is the anchoring. Sometimes other parts of the Bible talk talks about the um the the, the 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 kind of fellowship that we have with the saints, and we must be um the, the faith. When you talk about the faith, is not us now believing and exercising faith, but the body of teaching. Earnestly contend for the faith that from once and for all has been handed on to us, which is um, found in Jude there. Now, the word once and for all there is the word hapax, means that you cannot add to it or take away from it. Now, concerning back to this um, movie, so-called Christian movie, which I don't believe it is, The Chosen, they, when an interview was done with the um, the the, the, um, the producers of it, they said that they added and doctored up some stuff to try and change it so it be more palatable for people. And so they deleted some of the true sayings of Jesus and so on. And a lot of manipulation was done there with it. And it was not biblical brethren. They used some biblical statements, but it was incomplete and it came across as wrong. The Bible says, woe to the person who adds to the word or takes away from it. We are handling some serious stuff here. And so, here we have the doctrinal test, verses 18 to 27 of 1 John chapter 2. And it's held in the context of the Antichrist. The existence of many false teachers is evidence that we're in the last time. Between the first and second coming of Jesus, that's the last time, not just tucked on to the end of the world. Antichrist occurs only in the Johannine epistles. Um, verse 18 of chapter 2 here, and also verse 22, verse 3 of chapter 4, 2 John 7. This word is never used to describe the beast in Revelation 13. Note that the word Antichrist is never used to describe the beast. Sometimes we equate the beast with Antichrist, but it's never used to describe the beast. The term is a combination. No, the beast is a system, not a person, it's a system that demonic forces operate through. Now, if, you know, when I did the book of Revelation, I went into chapter 16 and went into some stuff there. My goodness. Okay. And so, um, the and we, we saw there, let me just turn to it just to make some reference here. Very important. Uh, Revelation chapter 16. I think it's important to read it here. Oh, doctrine is important. St. John, um, Re Revelation, just a minute. Revelation 16. Um, I think it's verse, you know, verse 12. Yeah, verse 13 of Revelation 16. And I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs coming out of the mouths, the mouths, not the plural of the dragon. A lot of people miss the little details, not the mouth of the dragon, 
the modes of the dragon. There is a multiplicity of methods are that, 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 that the dragon was talking about Satan, the, the evil one here. Um, and, 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 and he uses that. And of course, this section here, the modes is speaking about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But Satan has different method, methods to, to speak and to use, right? To deceive people. These are demonic spirits, verse 14. Demonic spirits that perform signs and go out to all the kings to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. That's another thing that Armageddon. And here we find. It says here. These things. What came out of. The mouth of. The mouth of. Once you come out of the mouth of. It's not talking about spickle. Or it's talking about the content, the words, the doctrine, doctrines of devils taught by people. Satan disguised himself, masquerade himself like an angel of light, light and his servants as angels of light. Wheat and the tears growing and so on and so on. And so therefore, the antichrist is anti means against or instead of. It's not just against, but the subtlety is the instead of is a way of being against. And, and Christos, Messiah or Christ, the Antichrist thus opposes Christ as his adversary or enemy with a view to taking Christ's place. He is a lying pretender who portrays himself as Christ. He is a counterfeit and a diabolical parody of Christ himself. In first word, diabol, devil um, is the Greek word diabolos. You bring up two words, dia and balo. Dia means to, to, to is a preposition, mean to, to, to go across thoroughly, completely. And balos, balo is one of the Greek words for throwing down something. There's another word for throwing something. We put it down intentionally, safely. There's a different word for that. The word used, balo, means to throw down to shatter. So when you put the words together, diabolos, it means to throw down and to shatter completely. And that's, that's the devil. He came to kill, to steal, and to destroy, to shatter lives. And so it's important for us to understand that here, the word, the content as Revelation warns about that, that in the last days, especially between the first and second coming of Christ, and it's going to get more and more intense. Um, you, you see it in Jamaica, there's an increase in, in false teachings and doctrines all over the world happening more and more now, coming into the church in so many subtle ways. That is why we need teachers. We need to 
emphasize doctrine. So here John is dealing with the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test. First John 2 verses 18 to 27. Verses 18 to 21, he deals with the Antichrist and the Christians. And then it, it, um, he goes into some contrasting statements here. Although they had heard that this person's appearance is yet future, as we do too. Even now, John says, many antichrists have already come. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the magic, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. There is an already-ness at work in all of these things. In 1 John 4, verse 3, he points out that the spirit of Antichrist is now at work in the world. Back then, and as he is now, what John means in, in verse 18 of chapter 2 here is that the, that the many antichrists are forerunners of the one they had heard that is still to come. So there is a man to come, but there are many who the spirit of antichrist um, concomitantly all throughout the world is working through because they proclaim the same heresies. He will proclaim and oppose Christ now as he will then. They are rightly called antichrists, plural. In verse 22 of chapter 2 here, he writes, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Remember, Satan is a liar now. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. The spirit of the Antichrist, says John, is found in anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. 1 John 4, verse 3. Again, in 2 John 2, 7, he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Thus, for John, antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. No, this, this, this kind of, I'm not here to say things that our logical way of thinking wants to hear. Because what I just said here, many of us may not like to hear this. Many of us have, each one has an agenda and we think that there are many ways to reach to God. No one comes to God the Father but through Jesus Christ. No one, none, zero. In other words, the person who want, try to come to Christ um, apart, uh, the Father through Christ, does not exist. It's impossible. God says it. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus 
is Antichrist. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh is Antichrist. Some have argued that John's point is that, that there is no other Antichrist than the one, even the one operative in this day, or the one who takes up and, and perpetuates this heresy in subsequent history. In other words, anyone in general can be Antichrist. If he or she espouses this heresy, but no one in particular at this time until the full manifestation of that man. So many of us, you sit down have some strategies. Number one, either you talk about demon and evil so much that you give it too much attention that scripture doesn't say you should, or you act as if Satan is not really an issue so much where he can operate undetected. We are not ignorant of his schemes. So there must be this biblical balancing, discerning mindset where we are not distracted like in Acts chapter 16 with this girl and, and, and Paul and his, his other um, comrades there. And it was some couple, few days that she was walking around saying the right thing. She said, these are men of God, it's true. And they are proclaiming the, the, the gospel. That's also true. But then after a while, turn around and rebuke. That's what Satan does. He says all the right things in the right way. And you have to know. And so whether in the first or in the 21st centuries is the, anti, is the Antichrist as if there were only one of whom the others look forward to. In other words, the Antichrist who his readers are told was yet to come is now with them in the form of anyone who somehow exposes the heretical denial of the incarnation of the Son of God. According to Demar, for example, it is possible that the early church heard that the man was to come on the scene who was to be the Antichrist. John seems to be correcting this mistake, this mistaken notion. In other words, many people are looking for one man at that time and even now. And John is saying to, but then and he's doing now to the spirit, say, yes, one man is coming, but don't be fooled. There are many, many antichrists right now. And that is what B.B. Um, Warfield, um, those of us who have done theology, B.B. Warfield, he says, John is adducing not an item of Christian teaching, but only a current legend, Christian or, or others in which he recognizes an element of truth and isolates it from the benefits, for the benefits of his readers. In that case, we may understand him less as expounding than as only correcting it somewhat as. In the closing pages of his gospel, 
he corrects another saying of a similar bearing, which was circulating at that time to the brethren, to the effect that he himself should not die, but should tarry until the Lord comes. In other words, um, you cannot use one truism and expel the other. You have to create a balance according to the word of God. So what, what John is saying here is that the, the man of sin is to come. The Antichrist is to come. But the spirit of Antichrist permeates not only other people, but it permeates also systems. It permeates um, other things. John does not call the beast the Antichrist, but the Antichrist operates through the beast. If you know what I mean, the beast involves peoples and ideologies that are a form of anti-Christian teaching. So, what do you think, brethren? Well, we're really chewing bone here. The proliferation of these false teachers indicates to John that it is last hour. In the original text, the last hour is not mentioned, interestingly. And I'm not trying to be difficult here. Note the entire period between the first and second coming of Jesus. Last hour emphasizes that um, the last days, if you may. And the definite article doesn't lock it down to the end of the time, but last time, the last days, um, it, it emphasizes the first and second coming of, of Jesus in between that time. From his ascension, his coronation, to his, his um, the, the second advent. The departure of the false teachers from the church is evidence. I'm going to give me some time to finish off here now. The departure of the false teachers from the church is evidence that their profession of faith was not true. Verse 19 of chapter 2 of 1 John. The Antichrist in verse 18, the false equal the false teachers against whom the epistle is directed. So the epistle itself is directed against false teachers, against the Antichrist, and it also reaffirms the true Christian. This um, epistle, um, the test of life is manifested here. Here in verse 19, he indicates that at one time they were members. Just bear with me, don't lose me at mentally here. They were members of the community which professed faith in Christ. I hear some horror stories and I've seen some horror stories in church. And as a pastor, if I didn't understand the word of God, I would really fall apart. I'm not saying that everybody who leaves a church and goes to another church is, is, is that. But I'm saying if you leave the church and don't go to another church, or you're not gone on towards some other ministry, then uh, could it be? I think so. In other words, this test in verse 19 indicates that the one who, the, at one time they were members of the community which professed faith in Christ. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord. 
But the, Jesus Christ said, um, many shall come and say, Lord, Lord. And the word for Lord, Lord, it just mean um, curious, but disposed. So even the content of the word Lord, although we just have English in Lord, means that um, the, the, no one can say Lord unless through the spirit. That means curious in a true sense. But you might say Lord, and you're not born again, but it's not curious you mean. It's not a salvific thing because the spirit of God is not in you. Just, just like when Jesus said, they have, done, have we not done great wonders and all these signs and so on? We see this happening today. Not because it works and it's spectacular, it means that God is in it. Of course, God is in it in the right context. But many people are dragged away by, by the, what they see and hear and so on, and not what the truth of it is in the word of God. If you look at, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, you see the, the, the statement there about a false false prophet a false prophet will bring results get results yes somehow because part of the deception but if he draws you away from god if he doesn't bring you closer to the true and living god that is a real test and here it says here the antichrist the substitute christ is to draw you to another christ but not the true christ that's why i said some time ago he's not good enough to believe in jesus but which jesus Many shall come and say, Christ, I'm Christ here and there. It's not good enough to believe in the gospel, but which gospel? Many people want to hear good things about their bad habits and their sinfulness. That's not the gospel. Even if an angel comes from heaven, we're told in Galatians chapter 1, the first part there, let him be accursed. Twice Paul mentions that there. And so they were involved in the ministry of the church until the moment of separation. They were hardly distinguished, distinguishable from the rest of the Christian society. That is what Paul had to deal with in Corinth. And what we have, the wheat and the tears. And I said this here, in, in one of the parables, Jesus talks about the wheat and the tears. And if you notice something, there's certain things that pronounces itself. And I get at it right away as a pastor to protect the people. And it's not my prerogative to find out who are the wheat and who are the tears. The Lord knows who those who are his, but let him name a name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The wheat and the tears go and, and, and the, the workers say, let's go out and weed out the tears. Jesus said, no, no, no. Let them both grow until the day of harvest. What? I mean, remember, Satan had sown the seeds tears and gone away this the em emphasis is there the enemy another strategy of satan is that he can use your righteous zeal to do his work that might sound strange but based upon what jesus did here to correct the workers the workers wanted to go out and to weed up everything Jesus said no no let both of them stay of course that would show some religious zeal yes let's go turn Weed out this and that. Thought that Jesus would be impressed by that. Wow, you know, that's pretty good, man. You guys really spiritual. But Jesus said, no, no. Let both of them stay until the day of harvest. What? What? But, Master, you're spiritual. How could you allow the tears to grow? How could you allow the... And so, <laughs> I'm just reading in that there. And so, 
Jesus, the master and the sovereign one, the one who knows everything. He's the only one who truly and absolutely, by your fruit you shall know them, yes. But there is another level of discernment that we have to live with until Jesus come. And that is, that is a Christological discernment where, where, where we cannot, do not know ultimately and absolutely all things because some of them might even seem to bear the fruit with all the paraphernalia of stuff but the Lord knows those who are his let both of them go until the, until the day of harvest well, not just for now until the day of harvest until I return and then I'll separate the sheep from the goats and so many of us we try to root out this what Jesus was saying, if you do that, the wheat and the tears look alike so much that you're going you're gonna to also affect the, the wheat because they look so much alike. Only the Lord really knows the difference. Right? And so we have to be careful that certain things in the church we have to know, we have to live with without compromising to know ultimately that that's God's prerogative. Okay, the church in Revelation, Jesus comes and says, I know all three churches, all five churches, seven churches. I mean, well, five of them were okay, were bad with many, two were okay. And so Jesus said, I, I know your works. He walks among and he knows what's happening in the church. He knows those who belong to him and those who don't. Here, John is saying here, um, but they, were, um, they went out from us either by excommunication or by voluntary separation, probably um, voluntary separation. They just get up and leave and, and they're trying to take other people with them too. Note the sharp distinction between they and us, brethren. They went out from us. Big contrast here, not the same people we're talking about. Next, but they were not of us. Again, big contrast, but they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And that the of us is what is called a qualitative genitive. In other words, they don't have the same quality of being, of, of, of spirituality as we have um, the spirit of God, if you may. In spite of their external membership, they did not share the internal life of us, the spiritual bond of the body of Christ. For, they for if they had been of us, no, it didn't say with us, you know. But of us, important to, to understand these distinctions. People can be with you, but they're not of you. Oh, my goodness. Man, this, this brethren, these brethren are always with us. And, and there, there is a witness that is in place based upon the context. But here, John uses a strong term. He uses the preposition of, and he uses it in a qualitative genitive way. 
you have different kinds of genitive, subjective, objective, and you have different aspects to that too. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. You see, the witness is followed by the offness. <laughs> Bad English, but sound theology, if you know what I mean. Right? Um, you are with me in all kind of stuff because, because you're off me. And if you're off me, you will be with me. <laughs> For if they had been off us, they would have remained with us. Westcott writes, if they had in the truest sense shared our life of us, the life would have gone forward to its fruitful consummation with us. Again, we see that the test of life and salvation is abiding and persevering. Ah, this is so important for us to understand. Anybody can start. Anybody can, after a while, the test and say, you know what? This, let me move on. And some will stay even up right to the end. But here is a test, John is saying. This is not just people changing fellowship. This is some serious things here. But John, John, John says something serious again. Say, but they went out in order. It's a purpose statement made here. In order that. There's a purpose in, the, in going out. God is actually saying, going out is not just a simple thing. It's in order that they might be made manifest. That they all are not of us. There is a divine purpose in their cessation to be with us. Namely, the exposure of those who are only professors but not possessors of truth and life. The in order that is not our doing, it's God's doing. Their departure was their unmasking. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 18 and 19, I must read that. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, verse 19. For there must be, this verse here, I want us to mark it in your Bible. So you're not surprised by itself. Which is what it says. For there must be factions among you. Hold it here now. What is Paul saying? Let me read it again. For there must be, not all, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. What a verse. 
No, Pastor, you, you read that, you read that wrong. We would want, we would, there, no faction supposed to be in the church. Of course, the true church of Jesus Christ, that's that is so. But in the church that we see and mix with people, here's what it says here. For there must be factions among you. In order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. So the factions is a process by which it's going to show up the true believers from the false believers. That's another method there. They can come out from among you, yes, as found the first John, but if they stay in you, they're going to cause a lot of factions. So you look at it as, oh boy, how can this person not change and this and that? It could be that they are false brethren. Because we, we must endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Note again, that is a qualitative genitive. It's the spirit's unity that we also share. And the spirit's unity is the unity of the father, son, and spirit. Two things, and then we close. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, abiding or continuing or endurance, or continuance or endurance, is a sign of a true Christian. Just as apostasy is evidence of initial unbelief. Note the emphasis of the phrase, for if they had been of us. That is powerful. They would have remained with us. Hebrews 3 verses 6 and verse 14 um, makes mention of this too. And um, 14 also of Hebrews 3. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You wonder why you can't quit? You can't quit the body of Christ or the believers. There's something greater. You began this work will keep it going until the day of Jesus. And if you do do that, the, God, the Lord will chasten you. Whom the Lord love is chastened. And he might even chasten you through death. That you might not be condemned with the world. And so the doctrine, the presence of genuine faith of us implies and necessitates perseverance. The doctrine of the church in the present age, Stott writes, is this. Granted that God intends his church to be visibly manifest in local worshiping, witnessing, fellowship, this does not mean that all the professing baptized communicant members of the church are necessarily members of christ only the lord knows them that are his we are told in second timothy 2 verse 19 perhaps most visible church members are also members of the invisible church of course the mystical body of christ but some are not they are with us yet not of us 
They share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth and citizenship. Only on the final day of separation will the wheat and the tears be completely revealed. Meanwhile, some are made manifest in their true colors by their defection. Start in his commentary, page 106. Genuine believers, on the other hand, having received an anointing of, from Christ, they know the truth. And so I'll stop here that this anointing is um, something that um, we will talk about in Revelation, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Thank you for your patience, brethren. God bless you, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will continue to minister to us and teach us because of the spirit of truth who is in us. Lead us into all truth. And may we see Jesus and may we be truly rooted and grounded in the faith, in the truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, brethren.